This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to another episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. We've recorded these episodes as we've all sheltered at home. And between passionate conversations about Southern food, you'll also hear honest takes about how these musicians have been dealing with the pandemic. Today's guest belongs to one of the most popular bands of the last 10 years, and his inspiration comes from his North Carolina roots. To me, this is sacred. This is sacred land. I, uh, I'm very connected to it. Uh, shamefully so. It's ridiculous how connected I am to it. Scott Avett, along with his younger brother, Seth, formed the Avett Brothers two decades ago and broke through to mainstream success with their 2009 album, I and Love and You. Since then, the Avets, along with bandmates Joe Kwan and Bob Crawford, have sold out venues across the world, won multiple Group of the Year honors from the Americana Music Awards, and been nominated for three Grammys. Their 10th and most recent album, Closer Than Together, landed at number four on Billboard's Rock Album Chart last October. And the lead single, High Steppin', is a great example of the exuberance the band brings to both record and stage. This song is just pure fun. I'm a Outside of the world of music, Scott is an accomplished visual artist, exhibiting his work for the first time earlier this year at the Soco Gallery in Charlotte. This week, we'll talk about Scott's love for painting, as well as proper Carolina barbecue. Lexington barbecue, our father has taken us there growing up. That was the, the benchmark for us growing up in, in the Piedmont. So, you know, you don't mess with Lexington barbecue. All that and more today on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Scott Avett, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like uh, growing up in a, in a small town in North Carolina. I guess it's it's uh, it's heavy on my mind right now, and just really relevant right now with our force into our present surroundings. You know, we've really been forced into the now in an un, kind of a kind of a scary way to to a lot of us, and then also to a really a really good way. And I when I think back on growing up, in fact, I've just worked on some songs to this point. I get the feeling that. Like I have a real uh, draw and c- connection to something much quieter than the life that I live, something much more contemplative. And when I keep going back to these times that I had growing up, where we had afternoons that were wide open, there wasn't a there wasn't a schedule, and I remember just having time to do with what I would do, and I would I would just be, you know. And it seems like in in adulthood. It's so hard to find it. It's so impossible to find those moments. So I go back to growing up in a small town where there's space that was slow, that priorities were, um, I guess, simple. Uh, I'm really grateful for that. I think it paved the way. It carved the path for who I am and everything I do. 
So overall, the answer to that question is just I'm so grateful to have space, time and literal, you know, geographical space to uh, to be a kid. So, Scott, are you on the farm where you grew up? I'm adjacent to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm connected to it. In fact, me and my kids roam the woods that I did as a kid. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of paint a picture for me of the of the farm. Sure. We started with 65 acres. My dad, my dad's philosophy early on, whether whether he had a plan or strategy or not, he thought, well, I'm going to try to acquire some land. Um, that's what I'll do with my money versus putting it back for uh, a more conventional retirement. So he purchased land in like 1980, 1981, 82, when it was really inexpensive. So there were you know, motorcycles and go-karts and we did a lot of farming growing up. It was all hobby, but it was, it was big hobby farming. That sort of faded late eighties, nineties. And I think that's probably collectively in our County in Cabarrus County. Uh, it's right beside Mecklenburg County where Charlotte is. I think as we traveled, uh, as I've grown and traveled so much, I started noticing this value. But then I started seeing this definite monetary value in, why don't I go back and, you know, settle there because I can do it for cheaper than anywhere I've seen. And I also know the lay of the land. I understand it. And I was able to expand the farm uh, really by about 80 acres or so. So we live on that. My brother and my, my sister and I all have land connected to it. So do y'all have pigs, chickens, and goats and that kind of thing? We have chickens, and I just got word that pigs are, are on the way. <laughs> because apparently the meat processing stuff, there's really a, 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 a tragic story playing out right now with the meat processing, and some farmers are really getting put in some bad some bad positions. So, but we always had cows, and we did have pigs as kids, and we've always had chickens. We have a, a big garden. And to me, this is sacred. This is sacred land. I, uh, I'm very connected to it. Uh, Shamefully so. I mean, just like, it's, it's ridiculous how connected I am to it. And your dad, uh, it, so in addition to having this hobby farm, he was a welder. Is that right? Yeah, that took up most of his time. So we would go down and work at his shop and cut metal and pick up metal scraps and paint uh, equipment that he had built. Here's a, I don't know if you remember anything like this, but I can't count the times I've cleaned my hands and arms in gasoline. <laughs> I mean, it was like, painting all day. And then dad would say, here, take this gasoline and clean that off. I was just like, man, what is this? Looking back, I'm like, what, what was I doing? What were we doing? But yeah, he was a welder. My dad's main gig was traveling. They were bridge builders. So he traveled most of the time in between bridges or jobs that they were doing, uh, they would build in their shop. So they would build a lot of trailers and they would build what they called wrecking rigs, which, um, were they would swing out underneath a, a bridge so you could work and, and do all the molding or the, the casting for the concrete or whatever. But dad hired me early, 15 years old. In fact, it's funny, Bojangles Coliseum in Charlotte. We play there now. We do multiple nights a lot. And I've seen incredible. I saw Soundgarden there. I mean, it just goes way back. My first job with dad was working over Independence Boulevard in Charlotte on that bridge that was directly like right under the Bojangles Coliseum uh, uh, overhangs. He had me working very young, and uh, I think I needed that. I was a little more rebellious with with my dad, or at least outwardly so. Seth might have been as well, and I think he needed me to get some uh, some taste of real life. So from 15 to 22 years old, I worked I worked with him on on the bridge off and on. And so, what about uh, what about your mom? I mean, who was the who was the cook in the family? So, mom was the cook, and um, she didn't allow anything 
with wild food coloring in it, you know? There were no Fruit Loops in our house, okay? She's a very talented cook. She cooks very well, was capable of feeding us steadily and, and surely, like, throughout our, our childhood. We always had breakfast. The funny thing is, is she never made more than she had to. We didn't go for seconds and thirds. It wasn't that kind of upbringing. It was, there's enough, you're going to get a one pork chop, mashed potatoes and green beans, and that's it. That's it. It wasn't hard line, but I remember every time I had neighbors, just those good, you know, just wholesome Southern draw neighbors that would invite me over there. Well, the nearest neighbor was a mile away, but I would go to, to his house and they would have me and we'd be having fried chicken, fried chicken and mashed potatoes and corn. And if I didn't get up and get seconds, it was an insult. They would, they would insist anytime their son was over at our house. My, I'd have to ask my mom, is it okay if we have somebody eat with us? Cause and she'd be like, God, I don't know if we have enough. <laughs> it wasn't a stingy thing. It's just that she didn't make more than we had to have, which I don't know what that means, but it means something, I'm sure. So what did, uh, what did the holidays look like around the Avid household? The only tradition I really remember of us, other than basic ones like Christmas trees and, and uh, turkey for uh, Thanksgiving, was just well, it was just warmth and just love. I mean, it wasn't very formal. It never was. There weren't formal candle lightings or formal days that we did this or that caroling or, or for this holiday we did A, B, and C. It didn't ever feel that way. It was never that formal, but it was always loving and always, um, I guess, from an adult's a parent's perspective, holidays can get pretty stressful. I just remember them being warm and loving times. That's it. Now, the one tradition, though, that I will say that's, that's going on ever since I was a kid every year is our the Avett family reunion, which we would have somewhere in the Piedmont, North Carolina. And that was usually about 60 people. And that was all potluck. And that is a, that is a, a, you know, a family reunion once a year. I don't know if that's that common. Like it's every, annual, you know. So that's nice. Uh, and that is a pretty big gathering. I remember one time Channel 9 or 36 coming out and doing a, a story on us when I was in middle school or high school because of our family reunion was a tradition that was, I guess, something that wasn't happening as much anymore. Uh, so I will say that's a tradition that I'm at the helm of, uh, of uh, you know, my, my generation of cousins. We're all inheriting it now. And that's still going on. It is. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm due to skip one. I, I haven't skipped one in a while. <laughs> Sorry, Avitz. <laughs> so um, I want to ask you about your grandfather, um, who was a preacher. Did you know your grandfather? He baptized me, and then he died, what, four or five months after that. He fell off of a ladder while he was cleaning gutters and didn't realize he had injured himself. And when he'd gone to the hospital, it was too late from what I understand, but he baptized me. So I never, you know, he talked to me, but I don't guess I ever talked to him. But having a dad that was a preacher's son, I think there was a built-in rebellion there. Interesting. Another tradition that, that's held true is that the church that we grew up in was a church that my dad and my grandfather had preached in for a moment, pushed for us not to take it all too seriously. So we would go to Sunday school and then right before the church service, he'd say, let's go to K&W cafeteria and get lunch. <laughs> so we would leave. And then when we were in church, he did 
hundreds and hundreds of character drawings of people sitting in church. And we would get the biggest kick. The Avent family would be over there drawing the congregation. And it was, to me, as I look, looked back on it, it was sacred. It was holy. It was, it, God was wrapped all up in it, but it was, it was definitely some delinquency going on there. And when I, when I tried to pull something off like that at my girlfriend's Catholic church, I'll tell you right now, that didn't fly at the Catholic church. No <laughs> way. No way. There's no horsing around at the Catholic church, but at the Methodist church, I guess you get away with it a little more. There's a little lighter uh, heart with it. So growing up in that church, you know, I saw my grandfather's book on our shelf. He was, he was a tradition at that church. This book sat on the shelf for years, which was a collection of his sermons. And um, when I, in my thirties, when I was really ready to put the throttle down on my spiritual journey, that book was just waiting for me. It's, it's incredible because the book was, was waiting when I was ready. And when I started reading it, my heart was open to it. The craziest thing, it led me to reading Gandhi. Gandhi led me to reading Leo Tolstoy's Christian, uh, his uh, confession and his kingdom of God is within you. That led me to reading Blaise Pascal. And all of it's led me to my current just deep love for Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr and John of the Cross and then the anonymous writer for um, Cloud of Unknowing. So my grandfather started all that in me. But my relationship with the church was, uh, I was very rebellious in my heart sitting in church. I still get flutters of that to this day, but I didn't grow up with an oppressive relationship with church. So your dad also uh, is a musician and a very talented musician. You guys have performed together. You've made music together. I'm wondering what kind of influence he had on you as a musician early on. You know, early on, we didn't grow up seeing our dad as a musician. I mean, I, he was just our dad and he had put away the the dream of being a musician to raise us because he I don't think that he could afford to do that and raise the three kids so that's where welding came in and that was and that's what he did he he was he was very busy whatever he did he was committed to be the best at it so he was very good at that and, and put a lot of time into it though he never identified himself as Jim Avett the welder I don't think you know only when that needed to be said he would say a lot my life is not at work you know, that's not my life. My life is, is elsewhere and it's, it's home really, but it, it's not at work. I don't live to work, but he kept the door open. He played guitar around us. I remember, uh, music was just a, just a kind of like that book, kind of like my grandfather's book. It was just there for us. It was just there for us. There was a record player. There were a ton of records, mostly old, like country, like, uh, like Merle Haggard and Kenny Rogers and, uh, John Conley and Willie Nelson. But then it also went into Bob Dylan and, and uh, Neil Young. And it's, it's interesting because very early we had this eight-track tape player and a carton of eight tracks. And one of my dad's eight-track recordings was in there. And we listened to that. But there was only like a handful of eight tracks. And it was John Denver, my dad's eight-track. There was a Three Dog Night eight-track. And I mean, we, it was enough to digest just to sort of romanticize, hear these things and romanticize. Like he listened to Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog, you know, as a kid, you're like, whoa, okay, what is this? Like, and then John Denver. I mean, all I needed was that, that record, Grandma's Feather Bed, and, and then the sentimental vibe of, of home. And I'd find myself tearing up listening to it. So I think my dad just, he just made music available. And we, we identified him as someone who was capable of delivering a song, like a songster. So I think that just was, a, in a way, a vehicle for us to look up to something in a non-musical way 
watching our dad's uh, discipline and dedication to travel and being able to do it and maintain a home is really incredible. And that's something we work very hard to do. But going further back, my grandmother was a pianist in the church and music. She was going to be a concert pianist and uh, she really prioritized music. I'll never forget. I had a girlfriend that I dated for a long time and, and uh, was very fond of. And I remember introducing her. My grandmother was in the bed because she was older and she might've even been in like a hospital situation, but we were just visiting her. And uh, I remember her pulling me down to her, her ear and saying, uh, now does, does she love music? And I didn't really know because she was just kind of like, if she doesn't love music, she's not the one. And I mean, it's such a broad question, such a, such a, like, well, who doesn't love music? And I know this, I know this girl loves music, but, uh, I, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Are you, are you really <laughs> testing her right now? Like, I know that was a deal breaker, a deal breaker for her. I know it was a deal breaker for her. It was a huge priority. And she recognized me as the delinquent between the brothers. Cause I was not one that was, you know, Seth's very disciplined in practice of music. Mus- musician is not a title that I throw around. I'm not like music is a is a is a means to an end for me. It's one of the vehicles I use to express myself. It's all about creating. Music is universal and its power is is beyond description. However, I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue how to decipher it. Uh, all I know is how to chase down an expression. We'll chat more with Scott Avett after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with Scott Avett of the Avett Brothers. I want to fast forward a little bit and talk about your music family and your road family. Tell me a little bit about this group of people that you travel with now and what that's like, at least travel with when, you know, we're not in a pandemic. So the beautiful and unique thing about our uh, just about 20-year journey has been that we were never successful enough to to grow too fast, and we grew much like a the the children that we that we are. Um, we grew slow, and people came along and into our family. Family members joined along the way in real time, uh, naturally, slowly, never in more than like singular additions. It was always plus one, plus one, 
plus one because we saw the need and we could identify the person, whether they were the greatest. We didn't always hire the, the best. Like, obviously, I'm not the best banjo player in the world, but I'm the banjo player for the Avery Brothers. Uh, it was more about the person. It's always been more about the person. And then the person would grow into the role. Like, I don't know if it's getting better. It's just uh, us being on the journey. Now, it goes well beyond the band. Uh, we have a whole crew of people that we know and that we love. And they've, they've come along the same way slowly. And it's been so personal. And it's so, it's so intimate. And uh, I, can't, I can't imagine it being another way. I can't imagine putting out a record where we didn't somehow make the album cover. Even if someone else makes it, we're working with them, make it like we're making it. For us, we've crafted this, this family. In a lot of ways, this family has crafted itself. And it's been, it's been beautiful. And it's been a, a, a harbor of love, really. So it is just that. It is a family. And really just saying that it's a family and that we love each other is all that needs to be said. So when you guys are traveling, do y'all sit down and have meals together when you're on the road? We really do. Yeah, we eat. We eat. There's two or three tables full of people. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same time every night. And even when we're on these off days, and I, <laughs> I curse myself sometimes because sometimes I'm not in the best state of mind or best frame of mind to be socializing with my compadres. Um, <laughs> but to, even on a day off, we might have like three shows on, one, one day off, two shows on, two days off, and then four, uh, four shows or whatever. And then you'll find yourself on the day off still eating with your family. <laughs> every night it's just like man what's going on but it's uh it's nice it's nice that you to say that it's it's nice to to think about that to to reminisce on that so are you uh are you a, a barbecue guy you're in the heart of barbecue country there yeah when i went to east carolina university and and got schooled in eastern North Carolina barbecue versus uh lexington style in the western i was like okay it's it is on i guess but uh yeah, my girlfriend, or my, my girl, she's my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now, Sarah. She used to live right across from Bee's Barbecue in Greenville. And we used to go to Bee's and get barbecue there. And there's obviously Parker's there. And then Lexington's a, a huge draw for us. That was what we had growing up the most. But uh, I love a lot of barbecue. And I never, I couldn't say I liked either one better or worse. I love them all. All right. Well, so if somebody's visiting North Carolina for the first time and you got to pick one place, what, what, what do you think it would be? In Charlotte, there used to be a place called the Hickory, the Hickory Smokehouse, which was uh, incredible. It wasn't North Carolina style though. Um, Lexington barbecue, our, our father has taken us there growing up. And that was what we were, that was the, the benchmark for us growing up in, in the Piedmont. So, you know, you don't mess with Lexington barbecue, but, uh, but I've never met anybody that puts the care and the thought into barbecue that Sam Jones at, at the Skylight in Aiden, North Carolina. I think I think they may have a couple. They may have one in Winterville as well. But uh, Sam has been has been real good to us. But uh, I've had his barbecue on a, on a number of occasions, and uh, I mean it's just it's, it's incredible. So you'd have to drive four hours east of where I live to go eat that. But uh, if you're in my area, go to Lexington. <laughs> That's high praise.
So Scott, I want to just shift gears for a second and ask you a little bit about your art. In addition to being a very accomplished musician, you are an incredibly talented artist. It's something that you've pursued for a long time that you're very active in, but not everybody knows about. Tell me a little bit about what that means to you. The art was something I just was naturally always doing and always drawn to. And what I mean by art is, is, is making things and creating, creating things. A lot of my life has just been doodling, but organized and disciplined doodling will get anybody in trouble and will start showing up in dreams and, and lives in this, in this case. And uh, the discipline that I did study, you know, uh, figurative painting in school, the the professor Leland Wallen was um, was dead set on instilling in me some sort of a, a commitment to painting, and then uh, Michael Elbeck, who was a printmaking professor there, was the same with printmaking. They different different approaches completely, but um, it had a, a big impact on me. After being told that m- most art students go on to either work in restaurants for a living or go on to I don't know mow yards, which I, I to me, you, you can certainly be an artist in both of those fields, so it doesn't even really matter. But something about that, I guess, lit a fire to maintain the form, like painting, like maintain a studio, keep painting, no matter what, always paint. And so even when I started touring early and was really doing the hard work in touring as a musician, I was really dedicated and committed into the discipline of keeping a studio and making painting a part of my life, painting, drawing, printmaking when I could. And it remained that way always. Well, so Scott, you, you know, we've been talking a lot about family and you've focused a lot of your art and your music around the subject of family. You've done some really large scale portraits of your wife and kids, for example. And and I'm just wondering, how does that uh, go over as, as a dad? <laughs> yeah, a yeah, yeah. I get the, the expected complaints for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's why, what dad, why didn't you pay me in that one? I'm like, all right. Or, or why did you, why am I, what, what? And I have to tell them all this, this is not you. This is a painting. This is not you. Uh, but you know, that the family life, this season of life that I'm in family is, is all that you see that it's just in your face, in your face, in your face. And if your eyes are open to it, if my eyes are open to it, I, I see some incredible things. It's just very, uh, very beautiful. So it, it'd be crazy for me not to be uh, affected by it. You know, I, I think it was, it might've been yesterday or the day before you, you posted a beautiful song on Instagram called a father's first spring. Yeah. And there was a lyric in that song that says, uh, I was a child before the day that I met Eleanor, which is your daughter's mm-hmm. name. Yeah. I'm just wondering how, has being a father changed you as an artist and a musician? Um, well, that's a really huge, like a, it's a huge blow to the ego, you know, having, having a child, witnessing a child being born, witnessing a partner going through that, witnessing a mother birth a child is such a huge blow to, um, to another's ego. And, uh, that's a good thing. I think one of the big early blows that are a series of blows that are, are, you know, knocking that, that ego, putting that ego in its place. And, uh, that has been a real benefit to me. It's, it's really hard not to only think about yourself, 
but having children does a, a damn good job at interrupting that. And, uh, I'm grateful for that. That's, uh, because I, I know that that's really the goal. Um, cause I'm leaving the, this, this ego, I know that I'm leaving it behind when I, uh, when I pass away. And, uh, the more that I can keep my eyes on it and keep it in check, I think the better, the better I am to other people and being good to other people is what being a dad is about. Uh, being good to my brood over here, you know, like that, I got to start there. I always think about wanting to change the world. And I'm like, then I'm being grumpy or something with my family. And I'm going, how can you be, you know, how can you change the world? Scott, if you're not going to, you know, <laughs> treat your family good, you know? So having kids is a good exercise in good advocacy and, and, and good example. It's such a good opportunity to do that. I love being a dad and I love watching these kids grow. I think they're going to be great, great men and women. I think that's exciting. How has this time been for you, this sheltering in place? I'm guessing you you probably haven't had this much time at home for a stretch in in a while. No, I haven't. And uh, I've needed it. I think me personally was probably headed for something like this. It was either going to need to be self-imposed or it was going to need to happen some other way. And, the other way probably would be other than a pandemic, you know, somebody getting sick or something. And um, there's all these like discomforts about it. And, there, you know, I said this the other day, there's real tragedy in this. And that's not it's not about that. That's that's just not welcome or, or nobody's happy about that. We were losing people from it and people are losing jobs and people are hurting. And that's not that's not cool. But I think collectively a pause is, is healthy. And I think that we'll all come out much stronger and, um, and better for it. Well, and it's probably been hard on your work family. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that depend on you guys. Totally. Totally. Well, yeah. Yeah. Luckily we've been able to keep our guys employed and we hope we can just come up with a way to, to string that out and, and make it happen. Yeah. It's just such a paradox because it's, it's so bad and it's so good. It really is. And it's so, it's so dark. Like, and by dark, I mean, it's so uh, new and unknown. It's, it's, it's like going into the dark and uh, there's so much good about that. I feel for the people, the the healthcare providers that are, that are taking care of people. I mean, this is real stuff, man. So my heart goes out to all of them and people that have lost loved ones and people that are sick. We think about a lot and we just hope that whenever we get an opportunity to do something for somebody, we identify it and, and cease it. Uh, and then the good that this has to offer, we hope to cease that too and uh, not take it for granted. And then when we do get back out there, it's going to be awesome. You know, it's going to be like, we're going to be so grateful to, to be able to work. So grateful to be able to play. It's going to be cool. You know, you guys have written a lot of songs about struggle and hardship. And uh, there's a song I love called True Sadness. And it has this line, just know that the kingdom of God is within you even though the battle is bound to continue. I'm just wondering if it's, you know, it's occurred to you that your music has, has really helped people get through this, this time. It does occur to me. Uh, I'm told as much. And so I, um, I try to ride that obligation in as sincere a way as I possibly can, because turning off is probably what, what is called for in a lot of ways. Um, 
shutting it all down is, is wise and will do for the soul great things. But at the same time, I mean, you could put out a song or, or, or say a word to someone and it mean it does mean that much. And it's not my, it's not my call what it means. Uh, I, it means something completely different to me, but uh, I, it does occur to me that it matters. And so I try to stay obligated to that and also stay sincere that I do, I do things like put a song out there or, or perform a group of songs for whatever Instagram or anything else that might lighten someone's day or brighten someone's day. But I do it in a sincere way. Cause if I'm not doing it in a sincere way. I think it's going to start turning in on itself, you know? Well, you had a great song the other day where you were in the chicken coop and it sounded like you had some, uh, <laughs> you had some voices That's in the crazy. background accompanying. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. So yeah. And I was doing all these, like I was doing a lot of them and that one was just after that one, I was like, Oh man, I need to shut this down. But I actually shifted gears and I've been working on a painting and the painting I'm so dedicated to it. It's taken all my time and it's so it's slowed me down a bit, but you know, I, don't get you know, this morning, Seth and I were able to do a little something together. That'll come out somewhere at some point. And, and we know, we know that it matters and we don't, we don't just go, ah, you know, never mind. I'm not going to do it. I just, I just sometimes not doing is, is right. You know, sometimes it's better. I'm in no shape to be, you know, talking to anybody or sharing my nonsense with somebody. And I got, I got to identify that as well. Like it's best you just stay, stay put right now, Scott. <laughs> I just want to ask you about one more song. There's a there's a song on your new album, Closer Than Together. It's called It's Raining Today. And there's a lyric in there that says, uh, it's raining today, let's stay in our room. Be patient, babe. The clouds will break soon. It, it almost seems like you wrote that song for, for right now. I guess so, yeah. I didn't even, yeah. Um, well, I didn't, uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what did, uh, I was listening to Richard Rohr talking, this has been last year at some point and he said, you know, and this might've been a quote he picked up from somebody else, but he said, you know, things are as perfect as they can be. And they always are, you know, and I just, uh, sometimes I don't at all understand that or think about that and it's raining today is you know really about depression probably um and didn't need a pandemic to feel that song to know that song or to to feel isolated and and locked down I, i can be i can be on top of the world theoretically speaking and just feel locked down and feel like a prisoner and i can be uh, at times during this pandemic, I've felt as liberated as I've ever felt. So I don't understand that. Um, I try to honor that and I try to recognize that, uh, in myself and understand what that means. Do you mind just singing a little bit of that chorus? Oh, uh, how's it go? Let's see. It's raining today. Let's stay in our room. Be patient, babe. The clouds will break soon, but I must confess, I'm glad if they stay, I don't want to leave, it's raining today. Here and then gone, invisible dawn, 
edges are frayed No warmth on my shoulders, no breeze To carry these old worries away My hat's on the porch, it's heavy and soft I'm on the steps and I don't have a coat What do I do? What can I say? It's raining. Well, I think we ought to leave it there. Yeah. Uh, Scott Avit. Scott Avit, thank you for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me, sir. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Scott Avit. Closer Than Together, the latest album from the Avett Brothers, is available wherever you get music, and you can visit theavettbrothers.com for news, updates, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. Come on by for more Biscuits and Jam next week. We'll see you then.